0: Hello creatives, I'm Joanna Penn and this is episode number 504 of the podcast and it is Sunday 23rd of August 2020 as I record this. So today I'm talking to Matt Hongoltz-Hetling on how to write narrative non-fiction. And this is fascinating because uh, it's about the type of story that just happens to be true. (laughs) This is not a genre that I write at all. And Matt is also Pulitzer Prize nominated. So he has some serious writing chops and we can all learn more about that Matt's process for whittling down interviews of three hours or more into coherent articles is something I found particularly interesting, as well as how he sees characters, otherwise known as people, uh, that he writes about. So that is coming up. (music) In publishing news, there has been much chatter about audio this week as Amazon invited podcasters to join Amazon Music and Audible and Spotify started advertising for a head of audiobooks, which had bloggers in a tizzy. Uh, neither of these things have been officially announced as directions for either company. So in a way, it is conjecture, but there is a lot of it. Uh, I read about it. Uh, well, I heard about it from a number of sources, but it was reported in the hot sheet um, by the wonderful Jane Friedman. So, Uh, I reckon I can talk about it in public since a lot of people are talking about it. (laughs) So I have seen a lot of authors in Facebook groups worried very worried about Spotify getting into audiobooks as of course many musicians have seen their incomes plummet with lower streaming rates but i have to counter this as a user of the excellent algorithm that spotify has with 138 million paying subscribers and 299 million monthly users spotify is by far the biggest audio platform in the world now at the moment in terms of driving discovery of our audio we have to to really drive it pretty hard. There is still not a very good discovery mechanism for audio in terms of podcasting or audio books. And we have to, you know, word of mouth and thank you to everyone who tells another person about my podcast, uh, this podcast, thank you, and my books and travel and my audio books. I mean, but word of mouth is, is a very slow process of growth. It's It's a good one, but it does take time. We can do paid ads now for audio with things like Chirp. Uh, But again, you know, it's been difficult. It has been difficult. I see Spotify, given how it serves me these daily recommendations. It serves me uh, things after I've played my playlist. It'll serve me more things. It has this drive time feature in some countries where it create, you know, curates a selection of podcasts and songs and things like that. Although, of course, drive time (laughs) is not really happening right now given the pandemic but i just see with spotify that the possibility for discovery is so much higher and as ever with these the inevitability of subscription programs is we want to be found and the way of making money as a creator we know is changing and what we have to do is bring people into our ecosystem however they may find us. So, what I see is that I will put some of my material onto these platforms, and some people will find them somehow within the algorithm, and they will turn up on my podcast or on my audiobook. And that, in that way, they will enter into my ecosystem. And that's the attraction of the Thousand True Fans model. And maybe some of them will become a patron. Maybe some of them will go on to buy a physical book. Maybe, who knows what will happen that way. So I personally see... The Well, then I have a wide mindset, I always have, which is I want my stuff to be everywhere and people will come into my ecosystem, however they will find me. And most of the time, I don't even know how that is. (laughs) And in fact, if I ask you right now, how did you find out about this podcast? Many of you will probably go, um, don't know, can't remember how I found it, Uh, you know, that kind of thing. Uh, Okay, so Mark Williams uh, on the New Publishing Standard talked about this and says it's a seismic shift in the publishing landscape, but the ripples will take time to be felt. So uh, Mark delves into the detail of the Spotify advert and the advert says for recruitment for this head of audiobooks says this is an opportunity to imagine new possibilities for what audiobooks can be. That line in itself is interesting to me, as well as the fact that the role is also to develop, pitch and oversee production of high quality content. So they will be commissioning audio original material in the same way as Audible and many others have done. So this uh, means that there is more possibilities for audio first creation. And as I've mentioned before, and, you know, I still keep talking around it and not doing it, but I want to just kind of rewrite some of my screenplays as audio dramas and, and pitch them. Them in some way. Um, you know, wide audio is about to get even wider. So uh, yeah, I'm more excited than ever about controlling my IP and all the places we can get it into. Of course, on the financial side, we do have to acknowledge that the subscription model is going to become more common than ever. It's moving also, obviously, a lot more subscription models with ebooks, And we just have to run with what we can and bring people into our ecosystem. I personally believe in embracing all of it, and uh, as I say, surf the wave, don't drown in it. (laughs) So I will be into Spotify as soon as I can, and as ever, I remain bullish on these things. Uh, That's just me. So also in publishing news, Dave Gochran put out a super useful post on how to sell books in 2020, uh, which I'll link to in the show notes, uh, called the Pandemic Edition. (laughs) So it goes into detail on which ad platforms and paid emails are worth doing, recommended resources for learning about them, including books and videos and courses, as well as reader targeting, email marketing, content marketing, and more. And I have an interview coming up with Dave later in September. But until then, go check out that great post, which has loads of resources. How to Sell Books in 2020. Then in Futurist Stuff, I wanted to just mention the Alliance of Independent Authors released an article asking whether copyright is broken in an age of artificial intelligence, talking about the implications of tools like GPT-3. And of course, I'm quoted in that (laughs) because it's something I talk about all the time. And uh, Orna notes, it is no longer technology that is a tool like a pen or a computer, which we have to use to create. But... Quote, it generates outputs that previously required human creative processes. So so it's a a really interesting article, as ever, Orna is super smart. (laughs) The article says AI is a mixed blessing and knowledge gives us the power to make empowered choices. The future belongs to those who can personally communicate and engage readers and stand out with a unique and identifiable voice, not those who push a punishing productivity model that cannot outpace the machines. As ever, um, we will be talking about this on the advanced uh, self-publishing podcast, which is the Ask Ally podcast. A L L I podcast in September, so um, we'll you know be going into that. Then we're going to talk more in detail about a thousand true fans. I also found that uh, there is so much news on GPT three right now. Uh, if you're interested, like just search GPT three in the news button on google or something but this week uh, the verge reported on a college student who used gpt3 to write fake blog posts and ended up at the top of hacker news (laughs) he wanted to prove that ai could pass as a writer and he told the mit technology review that it was super easy actually which was the scary part and i was talking to a, a friend of mine who's a um A freelance writer does articles and I was talking about the fact you can now use GPT-3 to generate headlines. And she was like, oh, that's great because I find headlines really hard. (laughs) But the GPT-3 headline generator for blog posts is very, very good. (laughs) So, yeah, I really think we're moving into an interesting time. And uh, this article by the Alliance of Independent Authors is very important. We do not want to fall behind in this in this age, we want to engage with the technology and be very aware of what's possible and what's not possible at the moment. Right, so my personal update this week, I'm at 20,000 words into tree of life. And I had a wonderful moment of synchronicity the other day, as I wrote a scene set in Macau. There's a ruined church facade there, St. Paul's, and I had already decided to write about it. I knew I was going to set this scene in Macau. Morgan and Jake were at the Ruined church, looking up at the facade, and I loomed in at the pit. Uh, zoomed in, loomed in. <laughs> I had the uh, lots of images open uh, on the internet, and I'm zooming in to the facade, and I'm writing about what they can see on the various religious sculptures that are interesting because it's a fascinating church. It combines uh, sort of Western Christian imagery with dragons and Chinese and Japanese writing, and it's sort of Western East in Macau. Really interesting Portuguese. Uh, Colony and now a special zone in in China. But, uh, and and I'm not going to give any spoilers for the plot, but when I zoomed in, so the book is called Tree of Life, right? It's about the hunt for the Garden of Eden. And uh, when I zoomed into the facade, there was a Tree of Life sculpture on the facade of St. Paul's. And I did not know it was there. It was just crazy. I mean, you can't make this stuff up sometimes. (laughs) This has happened to me over and over again with my with my arcane books in particular, as which are deeply researched. Uh, is I, I come up with some kind of conspiracy, and then I start researching and I find evidence. <laughs> of such a thing. (laughs) And weaving history and religion and myth together in the modern day. And it's just so interesting to me. I I just love this type of stuff. And uh, I love book research, but I love it when these moments of synchronicity happen and tie together something that I thought was only in my head. Uh, So yeah, and I've been writing about places I visited in Lisbon and Amsterdam. I have not been to Macau, but I definitely like to go and go to Hong Kong and that area, which I've never been to. And uh, especially as you can get pastel donata there which is my favourite flaky crunchy sweet Portuguese egg custard tarts seriously they are my favourite pastries in the whole world I hope I'm making you hungry and if you don't know what I mean and you can get a pastel donata from somewhere it's got to be a good one though it's got to be flaky and crunchy Mm. (laughs) mmm (laughs) <laughs> I have been enjoying my book research this week very, very much. And um, yeah, 20,000 words is, is a good place to be because I really know what the plot is. I know what's happening. I know my characters. And now I i just need to write it, really. But I'm, I'm really enjoying this one. Definitely ready to write a novel, <laughs> which is good. I also put out a personal episode on books and travel this week called Druids Freemasons and Frankenstein the Darker Side of Bath and how the pandemic has helped me feel at home here and what I love about Bath and what people don't know about Bath and the fact that it's not all about Jane Austen in fact Jane Austen didn't even like Bath (laughs) and uh, there are lots of pictures on the show notes and uh, if you want to if you don't know about Mary Shelley and Frankenstein in Bath then uh, you should go listen to that so uh, that is on the Books and Travel podcast also very exciting, the narration of the Map Walker trilogy is underway. So I'm working, what well, I worked with, I am working with Findaway Voices. They found me some great narrators and I settled on one fantastic narrator. Her voice is brilliant. She's doing a great job and so I'm hoping all three books might be out by Christmas in audio and uh, I'm really enjoying listening to someone else narrate them. I went through a lot of thought over whether I wanted to narrate them myself. But the fact is, it's all about time. I could narrate it, but I'm not a pro and it just takes me too long. And I'm going to continue doing my non-fiction, but not my fiction. I think it just, yeah, it's better to have a pro who can do to really do it justice and I know that there are pros and cons obviously I wrote the book on it <laughs> and that some people were keen to have me do it and you know want the voice of the author behind the book but yeah I'm happy with this so yeah exciting times. So thanks for your emails and tweets and comments this week. Michael Brent's interview really resonated with a lot of you, as Michael Brent always does. He is a wonderful, authentic guy who shares openly and honestly about his problems as well as the good things that are going on. And lots of relieved authors encouraged to hear that low sales can be reinvigorated and also that uh, we all have to tackle these downtimes in our careers. It is inevitable. So uh, just a couple of comments. Melanie Dawn Parkinson says, I needed this episode. Thank you so much. The conversation you two had really encouraged me to keep pushing forward. Thank you, Melanie. Charlie says, I've enjoyed your work, books and podcasts since 2013. This was one of my favourite interviews to date. The chemistry was great, the content relevant and engaging, and most powerful was Michael Brent's values and how they aligned to yours. They helped remind me why we do this. Thank you, Charlie. And I definitely feel, Michael Brent and I have never met, but I feel like we are friends. And if we met in real life at some point, we, we would get on in person. And, you know, we do have that kind of weird friendship that comes from knowing each other online now so thank you I'm glad you enjoy it uh SK Randolph said exactly what we needed after a year of neglecting the business and she's talking about their business sometimes life births deaths family relocating forest fires and pandemics happen (laughs) (laughs) Yes. And of course, if you're going through a lot of these things, then you can wait to reboot things. I mean, you can just live life for a bit. Things happen. Uh, And SK sent a picture of the Colorado afternoon sun obscured by smoke from the forest fires, which, yes, are happening right now as I record this on the west coast of the US. And yeah, it's just crazy times. Uh, Kate said, awesome down-to-earth interview inspired me to go back and look at my very first novel and take a detached look at what might be going wrong. My back catalogue is huge, but just not paying its way at the moment. I'm listening in my garage in New Zealand. So, yeah, I think all of us can go back and look at our books. That's what I talked about, going back and going, well, why isn't this series paying its way? What can I do to reinvigorate this? And we all need to keep that going. In fact uh, I remember Dean Wesley Smith talking about a metaphor of this years ago that still sticks with me. He talks about so think about a big ocean so there's the 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 water there and when a book launches so when you publish a book it arrives on the surface of the water. And so it's there on the surface and you can see it. So if you're sitting in your boat, you can be like, oh, I'll have that one. I'll pick it out. I know water and books isn't a great metaphor, but I like this one. But then what happens is that book immediately starts sinking as other books kind of come down from the sky and it starts sinking and sinking. And then what you need to do is to buoy up that book or buoy, I think Americans say buoy up that, you know, sort of bring it back up to the surface with something, whether that is another release that um, sort of helps the the old releases, the uh, some. Some kind of advertising, some something that brings that back to the surface over time, and that we do have to look after our intellectual property. Otherwise, you know, it, it will just sit there. No one is going to just stumble upon your book or your podcast or your blog in the middle of the world we live in. No, you know, it just doesn't happen anymore. You have to help people find your work. Yes. Oh, and then I wanted to just mention Laura, who said, I listened to your podcast in Antarctica. But the internet is very slow at uploading pictures, so now I'm back in the United States. I wanted to send you pictures. I was working at McMurdo Station for eight months, and I would listen to your podcast in the library, uh, which is just incredible. I did a, I did write a first draft of sixty thousand words in twenty days down there. The solitude helps with focus, and I thought that was awesome. I'm just thrilled that Laura listened to the podcast in Antarctica. I'm going to have to go and check my stats to see that it actually logged Antarctica. <laughs> as as a as a location but uh very exciting i'm uh the podcast does go is listened to in over 220 countries. So I'm thrilled that you were all all over the world. And as ever, please tweet me at the creative pen, you can send a picture of where you are living. And uh, whether you uh, if you have something out your window or something on your commute or whatever, or not your commute, whatever, send me a picture of where you are in the world. I always love to hear from people all over the world. You can leave a comment on the show notes, you can email me Joanna at the creative And uh, yeah, I always love to hear from you. So thank you for all those comments. So today's show is sponsored by Pro Writing Aid, writing and editing software that goes way beyond just grammar and typo checking this is a perfect sponsor for today's show because Matt uh, and I talk about when grammar and sentence structure is important as in it needs to serve the story and having a tool to help us write and fix our writing before it goes before it goes to an editor uh, is really important so why should you even consider writing software after all shouldn't you just know this stuff <laughs> Well, first of all, that makes me laugh because I still, as I've, I've said before, I still don't know what commas should do. I literally don't know. Um, I put commas in the weirdest places and I'm, I learn something every day when I upload a chapter to Pro ProWritingAid and just like check it. Um, before you send your book to your editor, it needs to be the best you can make it. ProWritingAid can help you do that with its suggestions for improvement, including passive voice, always an issue for writers, sentence length variation and complexity, which is the key to kind of making things much better, especially for audio narration, Uh, adverbs, repeated words, and repeated words is something that we all do, as well as things like commas and typos for the specific type of English you use. You can change the settings if you want to use American English or UK English, I think Australian English as well. Uh, My mum, who writes as Penny Appleton, is pretty tech-phobic and I was nervous about introducing her to ProWritingAid because I thought, oh, you know, mum is going to struggle with a piece of software uh, that she's never used before. But I sent her my tutorial and she absolutely loves ProWritingAid. Okay, so my mum is 72. She, uh, you know, she did actually teach English back in when she was a teacher. So she knows a lot of this stuff, but She has fallen in love with Pro Writing Aid. She uses it all the time. So she writes with a lot of dictation. She also has a lot of stream of consciousness writing, and uh, she uses the Pro Writing Aid to even run her first draft through to kind of tidy it up. And then she'll print that out and she'll keep that as her first draft and then work on it later. And then she's been running it through. She's just about to give. The uh, second draft or the final draft, whatever draft it is at this point, of um, A Summerfield Christmas Wedding is my mum's next book. And she is giving that to her editor, but she's been running everything through Pro Writing Aid and she absolutely loves it. What I love is, and I use Pro Writing Aid um, and I used Grammarly for many years, but now I use Pro Writing Aid because it works with Scrivener. So I can essentially open my Scrivener document within Pro Writing Aid and check the whole book, which is fantastic. And in fact, I did this across my entire Matt Walker trilogy before sending it to my audio editor because I just wanted to make sure that it was perfect and I was happy with everything. So um, I'm thrilled with this because with Grammarly, I had to copy and paste chapters, and this I just open it within Pro Writing Aid. And uh, yeah, definitely love Pro Writing Aid, highly recommend it. And I think it's also freeing as writers, we don't have to. You don't have to be an expert on grammar. You have to get better at telling stories and writing books that people want. And then you can use tools to help you make your uh, manuscript better. And then, of course, I work with editors and proofreaders as well. But this is another tool in our um, arsenal as such to make our books the best they can be, which is super important. So you can check out the free edition or get 25% off the premium edition, which is very well-priced anyway, by using my link prowritingaid.com forward slash Joanna, J-O-A-N-N-A. I've also done a tutorial at thecreativepen.com forward slash prowritingaid tutorial. So yes, get 25% off the premium by using my link prowritingaid.com forward slash Joanna, J-O-A-N-N-A. Right, this type of corporate sponsorship pays for the hosting, transcription and editing. But my time in creating the show is sponsored by my wonderful patrons. Thanks to everyone supporting the show on Patreon. This week, I did the extra Q&A, so that went out. And uh, I, I'm asking my patrons a lot more questions about my own direction and how, how they think I should do that. So if you want to be uh, on the inside, come and join the Patreon. Thanks to new and returning patrons this week, Tors Grantham, Catherine Petit or Petit, Grit Landau, Kate Rice, Karen Mueller, Jamie Richardson, Randy Kanageli and Chris Kreidler. I really do appreciate your support on Patreon. It demonstrates you still find the show useful and want it to continue. You can support the show with just a couple of dollars a month and you'll get the Q&A audio, including the backlist, 10% off my online courses, and uh, you'll be on the inside of the chats. (laughs) So you can support the show at patreon.com, P-A-T-R-E-O-N.com forward slash The Creative Pen. Right, let's get into the interview. Matt Hongoltz-Hetling is a Pulitzer finalist and award-winning investigative journalist. He's also the author of A Libertarian Walks Into a Bear. Welcome, Matt.
1: Hey, thanks uh, for having me on, Joanna.
0: Oh, it's great to have you on the show. So, first up, tell us a bit more about you and how you got into writing.
1: Oh, yeah. So, I got into writing when I was eight years old, and I wrote this amazing book. I don't want to brag. Uh, but I wrote this book about a an elf that was fighting in a dungeon, and this elf had some items of a magical persuasion and used them to defeat all sorts of monsters. So that was pretty awesome. I always had a passion. You know, I kind of grew up knowing that I wanted to write, uh, loving to read, all, all that, and then. My career path never really seemed to go that way. I, I actually started a student newspaper when I was in college, in the hopes that that would uh, be primarily a writing occupation. But I found very quickly that it was more kind of like a small business skills that were needed, and so you know I was you know selling advertisements much more so than than writing to fill the newspaper. Sadly, and so at some point. I had just kind of like the pile of rejection slips that I think we're all familiar with. I kind of just didn't really know how to go about getting into the industry. And so I was literally writing articles for like 25 cents an article. These like, how do you fix an engine? Or, you know, not even an engine, not, nothing that complicated. But you know, how, how do you clean a window? You know, like, like for these like uh, awful, content you farms. Know, <laughs> yes, yeah, yeah, yeah. Right. Content farms. Yes, thank you. But I was writing. And so then my wife encouraged me to submit an article for my local weekly newspaper in a small town in the state of Maine. And that led to me being able to write more articles still for very uh, small amounts, you know, 30 bucks an article. And that led to me getting a full time job as a uh, journalist at a weekly newspaper in rural Maine. And uh, even though that was like fantastically exciting for me, I always knew that I wanted to do more. And so I was always kind of like pushing, looking for that next level that would allow me to write more of the stuff that I wanted to write. And uh, so that led to you know, larger newspapers and then magazine opportunities. And then magazine opportunities led to a book opportunity. And so now I'm happy that I am uh, just on the cusp of publishing my first book. So I'm I'm very excited about that.
0: We're going to get into that in a second. This is so fascinating. How many years was it between writing for a content farm to being a Pulitzer (laughs) finalist?
1: That was actually the shortest journey that you can imagine. Within, let's say, two years... Of my first newspaper article, I wrote the article that led to what's yeah you know, my, my highest profile resume point, which was that Pulitzer finalist status. That article was about substandard housing conditions in the federal Section 8 program. It's kind of like federally subsidized housing, mm. and it's meant to be kept up to a certain standard And the article, uh, which I wrote with a, uh, a partner, a writing partner, demonstrated that it was not and that there were a lot of people at fault. And so what was really, what really elevated that article, it was a good article and all of that, but what really got it that level of recognition was that it also turned out to be an impactful article. It happened to... Uh, come at a time when other people were looking at the housing authority for various reasons. And so it really struck a nerve. And our senator, Republican Susan Collins of Maine, she took a very avid interest in our reporting and was motivated to encourage reforms of the national Section 8 system. And she was in like a political position to do that because she held the the purse strings for the, uh, the housing authorities. And so it happened to have this very disproportionate impact. And because it led to a positive change for the Section 8 housing program in the United States, I think the People in the Pulitzer Committee must have just kind of loved the idea that this, this tiny little rural weekly newspaper where we had three reporter desks, one of which was perennially vacant, had managed to uh, r- write a story that was really relevant to, to the national scene.
0: I hope that encourages people listening who might feel that they're in a place in their writing career where they're not feeling very successful. And that you kind of bootstrapped your way up there to <laughs> something really impactful, as you say. We're, we're going to come back to the craft of writing, but let's let's just define narrative nonfiction. So your book, A Libertarian Walks Into a Bear, which is a great title. <laughs> um, so what is narrative nonfiction and where's the line between that and fiction or straight nonfiction, I guess? Like, w- what is it?
1: Narrative nonfiction, the way that I think of it is it's basically just like any other fiction book or novel or piece that you might pick up, except for the events described in it actually happened. You know, when I think of the difference, it just seems to be to be such a small, tiny little difference between fiction and nonfiction. Because when you write fiction, you're starting with an infinite number of possible events to write about right and when you're writing nonfiction you're starting with a universe of events you're starting with everything that ever happened right <laughs> in the entire universe that's your the material that you can draw on and so it is so close to infinite that really it's just a a method of curation you're going to select some of these facts and arrange them in an order that will create the same exact experience as a powerful piece of fiction writing. And so, you know, a narrative piece emphasizes, you know, the same things that a, a fiction a story would in terms of, like, there's character arcs. There's uh, transformations. There's setting. All, we want a climax. You know, we, we want everything that you would want when you're writing a fiction piece
0: you said at the beginning there that, that it's a tiny difference between fiction and non-fiction <laughs> and, and I'm like no surely this is the biggest separation so I feel like people would have quite a different view on on that but it's interesting because yeah. you said they're a method of curation and you select the facts mm-hmm. whereas with fiction obviously you, you make it up but so how how can you curate truth In a way that serves your story, but doesn't distort what really happened.
1: That's an excellent question, and and I think there are—you do have to be careful to keep things in perspective. I was thinking of this example while I was uh, jogging this morning because I I knew that we'd be talking about this, and and I have to brag about jogging every time I do it. By the way, that—that's because because I'm very overweight, and so that's the only way I don't feel bad about myself. (laughs) So, when you are I, was thinking, I was thinking, like, well, what if I was writing about someone like in the aeronautics industry or who was like a an astronaut or maybe someone else within the uh, industry who is motivated by this idea that people want to, or yeah, that, that he would like people to colonize the stars. You know, that that's, a, I think, a, a very common sci-fi type theme. And it's also very apparent in the people who go into those fields. And so you might take a set of facts, like I would ask that person, what are some of the seminal moments in your career? What were the turning points? What were the important things that shaped you as a person? This is just kind of like an idea that I had. I would look at the amount of cosmic matter in our atmosphere. So like uh, every time a, a meteor hits uh, the atmosphere, we know it burns up, dust rains down on the earth, and that dust becomes part of us, right? It, it, we we breathe it in. And so then I would try to draw a timeline uh, between some naturalist spike in the amount of cosmic dust in the air that might have gone into our subject's body and that person's decision to get into aeronautics right so so like you would be saying you know you get maybe get to describe that this fantastic spectacular event of a a comet the size of a blue whale entering the atmosphere burning up raining dust down on let's say north america and this aeronautics person is 12 years old at the time he's thinking about baseball uh, but then he goes to a museum two weeks later, and uh, he's breathing in more cosmic dust uh, on that day than he would on an average day. And then he decides to become a an astronaut. So you can paint a very poetic scene with that. But I, it's also very important that you're not actually suggesting or theorizing that the cosmic dust had anything to do with that person's decision. It's a way to wax poetic, poetically about this character and to maybe access like a greater idea, which is that we all kind of want to go colonize the stars to some extent, right? Like that's a very human thing. It appears in our very earliest writings, uh, both fictional and non-fictional. And you can talk about this amazing spectacular event you can talk about this person's decision. And if you do it right, the audience will understand that you've just used this as like a jumping off point to explore some of these bigger concepts and, and uh, cool narrative opportunities without actually saying in a, a false way that cosmic dust is what makes us want to go out there. You know, I'm just saying that you can arrange those events in a way. That gives it life and vibrancy and maybe some creativity.
0: I like that example. And you you brought up so many things there that I'm thinking about that. I mean, first of all, is the using the individual to highlight the universal. If you wrote a piece about how big the universe is, that's not a narrative nonfiction. That might be one of your how to mm-hmm. articles back in the day. <laughs> so so you've, you've used someone's experience to highlight something universal. But I look at that. So where do you start because this is a question that fiction writers think about all the time do you start with the theme of say space do you start Mm. with a character say you met someone and you want to interview them or are Mm. you starting with in your case I guess a commission or are you starting with just your own curiosity and following where it goes Mm. you said that you could write about anything in the whole world so how how do you decide (laughs) what to write?
1: Yeah, you know, often I have spent a lot of my freelance writing career trying to craft pitches that will convince editors to give me a green light and and offer me compensation in exchange for a piece of writing. That kind of under uh, undergirding structure allows for all those sorts of scenarios that you posit. You know, I'm always keeping my eye out for things. Like When I know that something interests me and lights me up, then I try to think about how I can make that subject or person who has just lit me up into a pitch that is marketable. I saw a freestyle street rapper uh, a a few weeks ago, and I was really into what he was doing. I just thought he was amazing because his his kind of shtick was that he would incorporate things about the world around him into his rhyme just really seamlessly. And so I thought, oh, yeah, you know, th- this guy's got this really amazing talent. And so then you start thinking, like, is this uh, something that I would pitch to a magazine about rhyme and rhyme structure, or is this a cognitive or neurological skill that he's developed and how might that fit into maybe more of a, a neuroscience type magazine? Or is this just a guy who's got the great American story of he developed a a skill on the streets, as it were, and then launched it into a career, in which case we have maybe more of a, a universal story that could appear in any kind of a major market magazine. And so I suppose usually what sparks my interest is a person but it's not at all uncommon for my interest to also be sparked by just kind of like a topic and then I'm, I'm searching for those characters who can exemplify that topic.
0: And your writing does you know focus very much on people and or characters as you say but I'm I'm wondering so where do you take it from them so how do you tease out the story do you interview them and again when you have this material about the, that person how do you highlight your story but also respect the person so you've got the pick with the neurological Mm -hmm. aspect so you think okay I I want to write about how his brain works differently to someone else how he can do that but then you find out some awful thing and Mm -hmm. you think that okay I how do I respect this person but how do I also deliver on my my pitch. And mm-hmm. I, I guess yeah, and how do we ask the right questions to make our characters <laughs> real but also respectful? Because this is real life you're writing about.
1: And my own inclination and approach is typically to just like jump in. And that's often great because it it allows me to maintain forward momentum and you know use real kind of like wishful positive thinking to just hope that everything's going to pan out. But sometimes it's failing, is that I will go very confidently striding down what turns out to be a dead end, right? And so maybe I picture this thing as a a neurological, sciencey story, and then a magazine editor says, Yes, let's do this. And so then I go back to the subject and I say, I'd like to interview you and tell them what's going on. And in the course of the interview, it turns out that they are not at all. Representative of the category of box that I want to put them into. And then I've suddenly got this big awkward problem where I am looking for a different subject to satisfy the magazine editor and trying to get value out of my initial subject and my interview with him by placing him into something that is more appropriate for him. But when I get to that like interview phase, I typically like to already have a commission in place before I do that because it's it's quite a time investment. But when I do interview someone, I like to make them very lengthy, in-depth interviews. Rarely do I talk to someone for less than two or three hours. And in the course of that two or three hours, my interview style is to not necessarily focus too much on asking the right questions, so much as just kind of like unlocking how they see themselves and and what is important to them, and get them talking about what lights them up. Um, not having a very firm idea of where I want to lead a subject, and being flexible in what they can say what I find is that I often wind up with a really interesting story that maybe doesn't quite fit the mold precisely uh, for where I thought it would go, but it's close enough that I can bridge that gap. And the narrative is is so compelling and good that nobody cares if if there's maybe a a slight, like a sidetrack, you know, a, a slight departure. And as far as, if you find out something bad about someone while you're in the course of that interview, like they, you're interviewing a, a, a person and they suddenly put the interview on pause and speak very sharply or meanly to their spouse or child, and suddenly you get the feeling like this isn't really actually a very good person. Mm. So, what do you do there? And I think it is very important to acknowledge the bad in people, it's almost a unnecessary component. Like like if I am not writing something both bad and good about a person that I'm writing about, uh, then I know I'm not really doing a very good job because I I don't know any people who are 100% good. And I don't know any people who are 100% bad. And so oftentimes, if I'm Talking to someone who might we might think of as like the hero of a narrative, they're doing good work, we're, we're spotlighting them because of some amazing accomplishment they've done. Uh, I think it's really important to throw in a couple of negative uh, character traits or details that will add a note of reality to your writing. And conversely, if I'm interviewing someone who has committed murder Or or if I'm interviewing them because they're kind of a bad person, then I'm always really looking uh, for that redeeming quality. Because some some murders have, have just had a very bad day or gone through a very bad period in their life and maybe had some disadvantages in the first place. And so even though they've done this terrible, awful thing, there is still some context that you can provide that humanizes them. And so I think any most of my subjects, I think, appreciate that. Certainly, I've written about some people who have been very unhappy with how they've been portrayed. I think most people appreciate it when you portray enough facets of their character that their true personality comes through. It's so
0: interesting. I've not done this kind of writing, so I find it fascinating. I've been doing this podcast for like 12 years and and I have (laughs) many, many, many hours and a lot of transcripts of material. And I've thought many times, oh, you know, it'd be great if I could go through and find all these snippets and turn this into something. Working with transcripts is really hard. So I wonder, how do you <laughs> turn? So you just mentioned you had like a three hour interview. So you presumably you're recording this and you're, you're taking notes as well. Mm-hmm. How do you turn all this source material into an article? What's your curation? <laughs> and I guess it, well, yeah, what, what's that process?
1: Yeah, yeah, I, I am uh, the kind of person who hates to throw things out. My, my wife will tell you that that can drive her nuts. <laughs> and <laughs> the same is true of my writing. I like to start with everything uh, that has been said, even in a three-hour interview, and then just slowly apply criteria that squeeze some things out. And I always wind up with more material than will fit in the space that I have allotted and then that encourages me to try to cram more, more words and, and more facts into smaller spaces. And that results in this real kind of like efficient distillation. And so I think that's another good thing maybe about not being too, I don't know, too, too goal-oriented when you write. And so what I typically do is I'll interview someone, we'll we'll have the three-hour interview, I've got copious notes, I've got an audio transcript. If I am feeling up to it, I will transcribe every word of that audio interview, which is grueling. Sometimes I will use one of those online programs that will convert it uh, and spit out a, a transcript for you. And that transcript is never perfect, but you can make it perfect by listening and going through. And then as I I just slowly go through and, and clean it up, often it's not like writing at all. It's like just kind of like fixing things. And yeah, like, so I might go through it and just correct all the typos in my transcription. And then I might go through and remove all the garble. And then I might go through and anything that seems like a cohesive thought, I might uh, put quotation marks around and put on the he said or the she said. Mm-hmm. And then I will maybe strip out, I'll say, oh, here this person talked for 10 minutes about their mother and they were actually quite redundant. But here this one time they said it was, was the most striking of the eight times they said the same thing. And so I will move those other seven iterations down to a notes section at the bottom. And in this way, I I am slowly shrinking and squeezing the text that is there. And if there are things that they've said, points they've made that are important, but that they didn't say it particularly well, then I might write a paraphrase and put the originals down in, in my notes section. And then at some point, I will create a series of categories that represent different areas of the story. And then I will sort all of their quotes into those different categories. And all of this stuff that I've just talked about is very mechanical. So even if you're not feeling particularly inspired, you can just go through this rote, brute force process and nibble away and nibble away and nibble away. And what you find at the end is that you actually have the bones of a story. And often the story will also involve going through the same process with multiple people and you know other sources of information. But once you've arranged all that stuff under the subheadings, and, and then you start to rearrange things within those sections, you find that you are suddenly magically two thirds of the way there.
0: I want to ask about this Pulitzer thing, because I know everyone's so interested. It really is one of those prizes that is, for many people, a life goal. And you've actually (laughs) won other awards. You're a multi-award winning writer. (laughs) And what's interesting to me is that you talked about a story that made an impact, and I mean, substandard housing conditions is not the most inspirational thing for most <laughs> for most people. But it's interesting. Presumably, you're not winning these prizes for your beautiful sentence structure. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I wonder if you could, if those authors who you just obsess with grammar and exact sentences. Where's the line between that type of stuff and story and
1: uh, meaning? It is all important, including the sentence structure. I always take the position that grammar and grammar is not really all that important other than in the service of making points very clearly. So I really tend to take these very esoteric grammar points and just chuck them out the window because I want somebody to be able to understand what I'm saying. And oftentimes adhering very strictly to the rules of grammar impedes the knowledge of the the layperson who I want to be able to read and digest and appreciate my article. So I don't want to poo-poo sentence structure <laughs> too much, but I think there are so many articles written that you're trying to break through the noise of and and sand out in some way and I think the stories that I've been awarded from various organizations and, and for various things they've all gone through the same basic process as many of my stories that have not been so recognized and have not turned out necessarily all that good but for whatever reason, there was just like a, a perfect alignment where the person that I happened to be talking to happened to exemplify that issue just right, and the setting happened to work out, and the climax of their personal story happened to, you know, there, there's a lot of happenstance, I, I suppose, in, in that once you've been commissioned to write a story, you're writing that story, Right. <laughs> and sometimes the material will support a real crackerjack, you know, breakout story. What's more often is that as you go through the process, you hit an obstacle that you have to smooth over in some way and you turn in a a very serviceable, perfectly good story. But the things that I think really allow it to break through and and get head and shoulders above tend to to be things that are out of your control. You know, like you, you're going to write, you're going to do your very best job of research. You're going to do your very best job of writing. You're going to use all the, all the good phrases. You're going to exert full control of your mastery of time and space. You're going to jump around in the narrative. If that's, if that's in the timeline, rather, if that's what the narrative calls for, if you want to focus on the, beating of a fly's wings for some reason, you will do that. If you want to, you know, jump back into prehistory, you'll do that. And after you've employed all of those tricks and techniques to craft the, the very best story that you possibly can from the material, sometimes the material itself will just harmonize perfectly and get you uh, to that place to achieve that potential that you hope that you could. It's a little bit of luck and and magic, I suppose. We can't always summon it or or bottle it.
0: Well, then coming to the book, uh, A Libertarian Walks Into a Bear, which again, I love the title. It's (laughs) great. What was it about this idea that made you decide to turn this story into a book length project rather than a long form article? Like, how did you know, right, I'm Uh going to write a book about this?
1: I actually I was first commissioned for an article on the same topic. The the story, for those who don't know, it's about a group of libertarians, which is a fringe uh, political movement within the United States, and their emphasis is on personal freedoms and personal rights. And so, this national group of libertarians decided to come to one small town and just take over the town and turn it into their utopia. And soon after they tried to enact this kind of crazy heist of a town, the town started experiencing bear problems. And so the book is about how those things are, are connected. And I was initially commissioned to write an article for the Atavis magazine um, based on the unusual bear activity that was seen in that town. I was interviewing a woman for my local newspaper about her difficulties in accessing VA benefits And she was what we stereotype as a a crazy cat lady. You know, she was a little bit of a shut in. She had a bunch of cats milling around. And I I asked her about her cats because it's a good icebreaker and and I like cats. And she said, oh, I used to let them outside, but that was before the bears came. I was like, oh, well, that sounds really interesting. Forget about the VA. Tell me about bears. She started talking about how a bear had eaten two of her cats and, and how the bears had become very bold and aggressive and, and were doing weird things. And so I started asking around town, asking other people if they had also had bear experiences, that seemed unusual. And when I kind of had a, a feeling for what was going on in that town, I pitched the magazine article And I was really excited to get this magazine article. I really wanted to do a great job on it because the Adavis magazine is a good platform, and I knew that it would help to help me to make the case to other magazines that I could, you know, write really good narrative stuff. And so I went back to town and went through all the uh, interview process and all of that. And when I wrote my first draft for that magazine article, it was 32,000 words. And (laughs) (laughs) I said, uh, and they would have accepted 4,000 words, you know? So the article, which I, I was very happy with, was still very much of kind of a compromise of what I wanted to say about this bizarre situation involving libertarians and bears in this town i got in a couple of the, the best anecdotes including a situation where a bear fights a llama but there was so much left unsaid, you know so, so so many colorful things and so in that case i just had this massive trove of colorful material sitting in my pocket and, and i knew that there was a, a, a very large narrative there because I'd already written probably half of the book length on it. So, so it, it just seemed very natural to write a book about it. Is it, is it a comedy? I would call it a dark comedy. There's, there is a lot of very funny stuff, I, I think, and I, I do stray into the comedic quite a bit, uh, but there are also some very kind of weighty issues. You know, the, uh, a woman gets attacked by a bear. That's not funny, but there's also just all sorts of, of goofy stuff. The, the llama thing is great. There's a woman who feeds. Actually, there's one situation where there's two old women who live uh, next door to each other on a hill, and one of them is absolutely terrified of bears every time – She cooks steak inside. She won't go outside for like a day because she's afraid that the bears will smell the steak on her. (laughs) And meanwhile, her neighbor has been feeding the bears donuts for 20 years (laughs) and has a crowd of bears sitting outside her home (laughs) waiting for her to come out with donuts and buckets of grain twice a day. And so there's just kind of like a lot of really absurd situations that that I was privy to wow. know, no control I got
0: it's so funny. <laughs> I mean it's so funny there because of course truth can sometimes be stranger than fiction and I guess that's what you're doing with narrative yeah. nonfiction is you are finding these stories so we're, we're almost out of time but I do want to ask mm-hmm. you because in your original email uh, to me you said I think a lot of writers start off like I started out isolated and bereft of helpful connections and not the sort of person who is going to schmooze at an event or something so uh, I wonder if you talk about that and how you have managed to do these things and even into interview these people and um, get over those initial issues?
1: I think for most of my life, even while being very passionate about writing, uh, I never felt like I was plugged into the writing community. You know, I feel like everyone who went to get an advanced degree in writing, like their, their professor could hook them up and their former colleagues would go out and, and join the industry in and, and places that would be helpful to them. And I just felt like really locked out of all of that. And schmoozing is definitely helpful, but but Joanna, I know that there's like a certain component of your audience that is just never going to schmooze because it's not their thing. And if they try really hard to force themselves to schmooze, they will sound like there's someone who's trying really hard to schmooze, right? (laughs) It's just not going to be in everyone's nature. And it wasn't in my nature. And so I think even though the non-schmoozers have a disadvantage relative to the schmoozers, the non-schmoozers can get by on the basis of purely kind of professional relationships, which is what I did. As a journalist, I did develop a certain skill set in like talking to people But I've never been the guy at the cocktail party of other writers and editors who's like, you know, hey, hire me for your next opportunity. And so I think for me, the key was to always, I started small. I started writing for newspapers. I sent endless pitches and queries with different ideas. And I slowly got better at at sending those pitches. And every time a story of mine turned out that was something that I was proud of, that turned out pretty good, I added that to my portfolio. And when one editor gives you a chance, kind of lends you that sympathetic ear and gives you a chance to write for the next tier of publication that you're interested in, that if you satisfy that editor... You may not have schmoozed them, but you have a a working relationship with them. If they're happy with your work, that's all you need. Perhaps you can ask that editor if they have other people in the industry who might also be willing to look favorably upon a submission from you where you're not just in the slush pile. And you go through that process, you know, a hundred or a thousand times and if you pay attention while you do it, you walk out of it with a group of, you know, uh, a dozen editors that you can send a pitch to who have some idea of who you are and whether or not they, they like your work and your writing. And you're just always working to, to increase that circle of editors who look on you favorably. And over the years what I found and was very happy about was that those editors also bounce around from one position to another. And so every time someone moves from one publication to the other, you want to try to maintain some sort of contact with their initial publication and approach them in their their new position and see if that might allow you to expand your horizons a little bit it's an iterative slow process it's not as easy as going to a uh, cocktail party uh, or a bar and and palling around with the people who hold the the reins to these publications but it does get you there.
0: Mm. No that is uh, that's great advice because I know I'm an introvert many people listening are introverts and knowing that the long-term approach long-term professional approach is is great and i think that's true if it's um people submitting to short stories or if people want to get into traditional publishing then all of that's quite true but um okay we we are out of time so where can people <laughs> find you and your book and everything you do online
1: oh thank you so much for asking uh, you can find me on twitter at hh underscore matt if you google my name you'll get to my website at matt and uh, you can find my book on uh, A Libertarian Walks Into a Bear on Amazon, any uh, major online retailer, and through the publisher, which is Public Affairs, a subsidiary of Hachette.
0: Fantastic. Well, thanks so much for your time, Matt. That was great.
1: Joanna, thank you so much. This has been fantastic.
0: So I hope you found the interview with Matt interesting. I definitely loved hearing about a completely different kind of writing than I am used to. But the principles of story still apply. Character, theme, setting, plot, structure, which is just fascinating. These principles just go across everything. So next week, I'm talking to Len Edgley from the Kindle Chronicles podcast, which I'm sure some of you have listened to. And it has been running even longer than my show. Len is prolific. Len has also interviewed Jeff Bezos several times, amongst other luminaries. Um, We talk about how the recent... US Congress hearing about big tech uh, is might affect people and some of the developments that have fascinated us over time. So that is coming up next week. Happy writing, and I'll see you next time. Thanks for listening today. I hope you found it helpful. You might also like the backlist episodes and show notes available at thecreativepen.com forward slash podcast. You can also get your free author blueprint at thecreativepen.com forward slash blueprint. If you'd like to connect, you can tweet me at TheCreativePen or find me on Facebook at The Creative Pen. See you next time.